I invite you to make your way to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Our text today is verse 47 through verse 71, uh, with a particular emphasis on the last section and one verse, verse 69, in that last section, and a message entitled, Jesus Is. We're going to think about Jesus today as the Son of Man and as the Son of God. And then we're going to close out the Gospel of Luke with what is really part two and part three of this message. In chapter 23, we find Jesus as the crucified Savior and Lord. And then chapter 24, he's the risen and ascended Lord uh, who we now await his return. So I look forward to this message today as well as the next two chapters as we bring all of this together uh, for the glory of King Jesus. We last considered Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was preparing to drink the cup of suffering and endure the wrath of God on our behalf. Uh, He had a conversation with Peter and he told Peter that Satan wanted to sift him like wheat, but that Jesus had prayed for him. Uh, The faith of Peter would falter, but it would not ultimately fail. Then Jesus had a conversation with the disciples about what was ahead and what they should be anticipating in what was ahead. And he told them to pray to not enter into temptation. And in prayer, Jesus surrendered his will to the will of the Father. He knew that he was about to drink the cup of suffering. He was about to endure the wrath of God as he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. And the Bible says that an angel was sent to strengthen Jesus. And Jesus told his disciples once again to get up and to pray so that they would not fall into temptation. According to verses 47 to 53, while Jesus was still speaking, a mob came with Judas the betrayer leading them. He approached Jesus to greet him with a kiss. And Jesus said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And all of a sudden, the disciples realized what was about to happen. And one of them struck the high priest's servant uh, with a sword and cut off his right ear. Uh, John chapter 18 identifies the swordsman as Peter. He was undoubtedly aiming for his head and missed in the moment. But at any rate, Jesus touches the servant's ear and heals him. And Jesus says to the chief priests, the temple police, and the elders, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day he had been in the temple. Every day he had been teaching, and they had not laid a hand on him. But now, Jesus says, the dominion of darkness has come. So in verses 54 to 62, they seized Jesus, and they led him away to the high priest's house. Luke does not record all of the details uh, of the appearance before Caiaphas, the high priest, and the summoned Sanhedrin council, as do Matthew and John in their Gospels. But Jesus uh, was taken to the home of Caiaphas, the official high priest, and before that, he was led to the home of Annas. That's significant because Annas was the ex-high priest, and we might think about him kind of like the, the power behind the power. He was the power behind the throne. And Peter follows along at a distance. And I think we read here one of the saddest accounts in all of the scripture. 
Jesus knew that Peter's faith was going to falter and were given an account of exactly how it faltered. A fire was lit in the courtyard. Peter sat down among the people there and a servant recognizes Peter as having been with Jesus and he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. That was the first denial. A little while passed and someone else recognized him as being one of them, that he had been with the group of the disciples. And Peter said, man, I am not. Denial number two. An hour went by and someone else insisted that Peter was with Jesus and that Peter was a Galilean. Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Denial number three. A rooster crowed. Peter had denied the Lord three times, just as Jesus had said. And in that moment, the Lord looked at Peter. Can you imagine the glance that came Peter's way? Even in that moment, mercy for Peter in his faltering faith. Peter remembered what Jesus said. And the Bible says that he went outside and he wept bitterly. He was broken because he had denied the Lord after he said he would go even to the point of death with him. They began to mock and beat Jesus, blindfolding him and jeering at him and saying many other blasphemous things according to verses 63 and 64. And I think it's important to note here in the midst of all that's taking place in this narrative That sinful rebellion thinks that omnipotence can be held captive, and it cannot. Sinful rebellion thinks that goodness can be assaulted and defeated, and it cannot. Sinful rebellion thinks that omniscience can be blinded, and it cannot. And sinful rebellion thinks that divine justice can be successfully defied, and it cannot. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 66. When daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They all asked, verse 70, are you then the son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. Why do we need any more testimony, they said, since we've heard it ourselves from his mouth. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and then the day that he was crucified, Jesus stood trial several times before several different people who judged him. Ultimately, he would face six different times of trial, three before the Jewish officials and three before the Roman officials. Luke records in his gospel two out of the three of the Jewish trials. He was first brought to the home of Annas, the the ex-high priest, as I've already referenced. Then he was brought to the home of Caiaphas, the sitting high priest, The Sanhedrin gathered there and false witnesses were brought before the council and the high priest demanded to know if Jesus was in fact the Son of God. And after 
after that, the beating that is described in verse 63 to 65 began. As soon as daybreak came, the Sanhedrin gathered again in official session, and they conducted the trial that's described in the section that we just read. The elders, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led Jesus into the council. After all, the night trial that they had had was actually illegal according to their own laws, and they wanted to do it in a way that they could uh, cross all the T's and dot all the I's. And the questioning and the interrogation of our Lord began. If you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus replied, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. And then we come to verse 69, which is going to be our primary focus for our remaining time together. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. I also want to draw in the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 64. In Matthew 26 and verse 64, the scripture says, But I tell you, in the future you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I want us to focus together on three truths about Jesus from these verses. Jesus is the Son of Man. He is seated at the right hand of power. And he will return on the clouds of heaven. First, Jesus is the Son of Man. Now, I find it interesting when I read the Scripture and read the Gospels that Jesus was mostly subtle in uh, revealing his identity in his earthly ministry. He didn't go about in his earthly ministry and open up with, uh, I'm the Messiah, I'm the King. Uh, he, He didn't introduce himself that way. He was quiet. He was humble. He made some outright claims in some settings when it was fitting, and then he made some veiled claims in other settings when it was more fitting. The phrase Son of Man stands out in the Scripture because it appears almost 200 times collectively between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man 88 times in the New Testament. In the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself most often as the Son of Man. So it's his favorite designation. It was his most usual way of describing himself. And we find some connection in the Old Testament to this, Because in the book of Daniel, the second coming or the return of Jesus in the future is referenced in a dramatic vision with a prophetic view. The dramatic vision was given to uh, the servant of God with a prophetic view. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 says this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up uh, to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Verse 14 of Daniel chapter 7. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now here's the connection. The Son of Man referenced in Daniel represents the Messiah. 
and it represents someone who is of human descent. So if you read Daniel 7 in its entirety, which I would encourage, the Son of Man is an exalted figure. And the meaning is a double meaning. It's someone who is in the form of a human, but who is also the exalted heavenly one. It's none other than the Messiah himself. The Son of Man will conquer the evil world system. He will obtain authority to rule over God's kingdom. He will exercise that authority universally. And he will also share that rule as his people rule and reign with him. Now, let's make clear here that by becoming a man, Jesus did not in any way cease to be God. He is eternally the Son of God. He claimed to be God. I and my Father are one, Jesus said. Christ is the eternal Son of God, and in his incarnation as Jesus Christ, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. Jesus has always been God, but watch this. At the incarnation, Jesus took on human flesh and dwelt among us. I like the way the Council of Chalcedon put it in 451 AD. They affirm that Christ is, listen to this, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man. So we would say that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, and he is inseparably so eternally and is unchanging. Jesus demonstrated his authority as the Son of Man in his earthly ministry. You might recall in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 9 that they brought a paralytic man to Jesus for healing. And in that moment, Jesus pronounces to the man that his sins had been forgiven. The religious people were very upset about that because to declare that somebody's sins were forgiven was something that only God could do. Only God could forgive sins. So for Jesus to say directly, your sins are forgiven, he was identifying himself as God in the flesh. And when they got upset about it, Jesus explained that, in fact, that was exactly the point of what he was doing. He said, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus is the Messiah. He has the authority of the Most High. He is God in the flesh, and he identified himself as such. Now for the second part. Jesus is the Son of Man who is seated at the right hand of power. This idea of the right hand is is a fascinating idea. Uh, It represents authority and strength. So to be at the right hand of the one who possesses the ultimate and eternal authority and strength is to identify the person, the one at the right hand, as having something that is unique. A person of authority who puts someone at their right hand in in a literal sense in those days would recognize the honor and the dignity and the authority of the one who was on their right hand. 
God's right hand in prophecy refers specifically to the Messiah who is given power and authority over his enemies. And this is an important connection here because this rises to the surface in the Old Testament. In Psalm 18 and verse 35, it says, You have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand upholds me, and your gentleness makes me great. Psalm 110 and verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 118 verse 15 and 16 says, There are shouts of joy and victory in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand performs valiantly. The Lord's right hand is raised. The Lord's right hand performs valiantly. So what are we saying when we say Jesus is the Son of Man who is seated at the right hand of the power of God? We're saying that he is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Spirit. And he has honor and power and authority. And what Jesus was doing was he was pointing them to the future of his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. So when he was speaking to them, he was speaking in future tense. Now we can just say he is seated at the right hand of the power of God. This is his position over all of the universe. He would be crucified soon, but he would conquer death and he would take away our sin. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1 and verse 3. He said, the sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down. Where did he sit down? At the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the radiance of God's glory. What is radiance? It's brightness. The radiance shining forth from the source of light. Somebody said that Jesus is, Jesus is the beam of God's glory. You know, we've never seen the sun. We've only seen the, the rays that, that emanate from the sun uh, to us. Uh, and even so, we've never seen the Father. But we've seen the Son because He has been shown to us as the radiance of God's glory. He has been shown to the world. The writer of Hebrews says that He is the exact representation of God's nature. Uh, that idea of the exact representation is like a likeness that is made by a stamp. So if you took a stamp, uh, an old school stamp, and it had an image on it, and then you stamp something with it, the exact image of it is going to be on whatever it was that you stamped. It's the same way with Christ, that he's the exact representation of God's nature. God has spoken to us in various times and in various ways, but he has preeminently spoken to us by his son. And that's the lead-in to verse 3 that I just read in, in Hebrews. And not only that... But he upholds all things by the word of his power. And this idea of upholding all things is of actively sustaining. So in other words, in his earthly ministry, Jesus demonstrated the word of his power to heal, to forgive, to cast out demons, to calm the storms. So when we think about our God and we think about Jesus Christ, our Savior, we're not thinking about a God who is distant and uninterested in us. We're not thinking about a God who is uninvolved in our lives or disinterested in our world. We're not talking about the God of deism who created it, 
uh, designed it, made the watch, wound it up, and then just let it go to come back to it at some other later time. We're talking about the God who actively made what he made and then by the power of his word upholds what he has made. That means that the God who created you, the God who redeemed you, is also the God who sustains you. This has practical application for us moment by moment and day by day as we pray and as we trust in God and as our faith grows and our, our dependence on God grows, we understand that he is with us by the word of his power and he's active in his creation. But the pinnacle of it all, according to Hebrews 1 and verse 3, is that he made purification for sins and he's seated at the right hand of God. Friends, this is good news because we cannot purify ourselves. It is all of grace. This tells us that the Christian faith is not about try harder and do better and hope for the best in the end. No, this is about a Savior who has made purification for our sins. And when he finished what he came to do, he sat down at the right hand of God. And in sitting down at the right hand of God, it was uh, symbolic to us that his work was done, the work of redemption. Listen to the way Hebrews 10 and verse 10 says it. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. I love this phrase, once for all. And then verse 12 says, when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. Once for all, a single sacrifice for sins. And he sat down at the right hand of God. Death would not and could not hold him. And he would have the highest of all authority. Peter would later write in 1 Peter 3 and verse 22, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him. Jesus at the right hand of the Father is also referencing the idea of his coming into his kingdom. In other words, his, his realizing what was already rightfully his. You remember in the temptation of Jesus as he's preparing for his public ministry and, and Satan himself uh, tries to tempt him and, and take him off course and divert him from the mission that he came to do. One of the things that he tried to tempt him with was to receive all the kingdoms of the world out of due time. They were already his. But he was appealing to him to take something in the moment that was not the right moment and it was not the right way. But in being seated at the right hand of God the Father, he is coming into his kingdom and he is asserting himself as the one who has the authority over all of these things. In Ephesians 1 and verse 20 says that God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. Far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Paul writes, look, when he got exalted, he was exalted over everything that there was to be exalted over. Like there's no name, there's no authority, there's no power, there's no anything that could be exalted over Christ because he is the supreme Savior at the right hand, the place of honor, authority, power, and glory, having completed his work. 
Now for the third part. Jesus is the son of man who is seated at the right hand of power. And he will come on the clouds of heaven. God's sovereignty over creation and over the natural realm is referenced in connection with clouds in the Bible. Sometimes I think we read scripture and we've read it maybe a number of different times. We've heard passages preached. We, we have the general idea and it's all, almost like our minds kind of just skim the surface. And, and we don't pick up on the depths of the treasures that can be mined when we read it and really intake what's being said. And a reference in the Gospel of Matthew to the clouds of heaven is significant in chapter 26. God's sovereignty over creation in the natural realm is referenced in connection with those clouds in the Bible. Psalm 104 and verse 2 and 3 says, God wraps himself in light as if it were a robe, spreading out the sky like a canopy, uh, paying the beams of his palace on the waters above, making the clouds his chariot, and walking on the wings of the wind. Now, obviously, there's a lot of uh, uh, symbolism even in that. But I, th- I think just to simplify it, uh, it kind of helps me to think about it. When it speaks here of God wrapping himself uh, in light as if it were a robe, he's spreading out the sky like it's a, like it's a canopy, and, and he's making the clouds his chariot. He's walking on the wings of the wind. You know what I think that it points to? That God is like no other. There's none like him. Of who could this be said? Who could we speak of in such a way? Who else could we make reference to uh, than God himself and Jesus Christ who came in the flesh? And in the Bible, a cloud is prominent also in the Exodus narrative. Remember the glory of God traveled with his people in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. What did that cloud represent? The presence of God, the power of God, the protection of God on behalf of his people. If God was with them, what else could they need? God could supply everything that they needed. If God's power was upon them, what obstacle could they not overcome? Where else would they even look for help when they've got the ultimate help? who has made himself present with them. And then Jesus spoke in his trial, as I referenced, of coming on the clouds of heaven. And he's going to return on a cloud to lead his children and usher in the eternal kingdom of God. And when Jesus referenced coming on the clouds of heaven, the high priest was upset and he declared that Jesus should be put to death because of it. Now, there's a connection here that I don't want you to miss. Caiaphas and the court who were uh, interrogating Jesus and making these decisions, they knew full well that clouds were also a common symbol in the Old Testament of the coming of God's judgment of the nations. That's very important. Isaiah 19 and verse 1 says, See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and he's coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. So Jesus referencing coming on the clouds of heaven 
was a connection to people who would have known the Old Testament that just as judgment fell on Egypt, judgment was going to fall on Jerusalem and judgment was going to fall on the nations. Returning on the clouds also parallels the description that Luke wrote about the ascension of Jesus into heaven. Acts chapter 1 and verse 9 through 11, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These were angels and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Just as Jesus ascended with clouds, so too he will return with the clouds. And when he returns, he will return to judge the living and the dead. Those religious people that were listening, when they heard the reference to the clouds, they would have made that connection to judgment. When you hear the statement that Jesus Christ, the Lord of all glory, the one who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, is going to return, it ought to make you ask yourself, am I ready? Am I prepared to meet him? You see, we believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ and his return will be personal, visible, and glorious. We await his return. He will return with the host of heaven and with his people to establish the messianic kingdom on earth and to usher in the eternal kingdom. At the beginning of Revelation, John described what it will be like when every eye sees him. In Revelation 1 and verse 7, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen. Now, I love the way a pastor by the name of Richard Phillips uh, illustrated this. He said, in the theater, there's a practice known as upstaging. And what upstaging is, is when the supporting characters turn their collective backs on the audience and they force their gaze on the lead actor who has entered the stage. And he says, John is doing something like this in the opening section of Revelation, drawing all of our attention to the person and the work of Christ. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9 and verse 26 says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. He already dealt with sin at the cross, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So here's the imagery. Our eyes are not on one another. That's not where our eyes ultimately are. Our eyes are not on the preacher. That's not where our eyes should be. It should be that we all turn and we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. That Jesus Christ, the Lord of all glory, he's the only one that we should be focusing on. And when he's focused on in that way, he gets the glory and we get the blessing. Now I draw your attention to verse 70. They all asked, are you then the son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. I want you to know that that word, that phrase, I am, is packed 
with meaning that I don't have time to completely unpack at the moment. But I'll tell you this, Jesus is the great I am. He is the eternal God, the Son of God, who came to dwell among men in the flesh. And he's the only Savior, and he's the Lord of glory. And here's the good news. When you repent of your sins and you trust in his death, burial, and resurrection, you can be saved and you can know him. You see, what we're doing when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ and we share the good news of how people can be forgiven and reconciled with God and saved, we're saying there's only one you ought to be focusing on. It's Jesus. He's the hope of all eternity. And he's accomplished your salvation. And if you will repent of your sins and believe in him, your life can be forever changed. That's good news. That's the greatest news of all. Let's bow our heads together for a moment. Here in just a moment, Pastor Eric's going to come and lead us in a closing chorus. If you are indeed saved and you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want you to take a moment to thank him that he was willing to endure what we're going to focus in on intently in chapter 23. And that not only was he crucified, but he was buried in a borrowed tomb. And he was raised on the third day. He ascended back into heaven. And even now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father and we await his return. Would you thank God for the hope that you have? Because of the crucified, risen, reigning, and soon to return Lord. But I know enough to know that even in a group this size, or maybe folks listening with us online, that there's somebody, or maybe somebody's, who've not yet repented and believed. You'd have to say, if you were honest, that you are not a follower of Jesus. You might know about him, you might respect him, you might know something about the scripture, but you are not a follower of Jesus, but you want to be, would you be willing to ask God to forgive you of your sins and place your faith and trust in Jesus? If you are, God will save your soul. Father, we're so thankful today for Jesus, who is our hope. So easy for us to get our eyes off of him and get our eyes on ourselves or on other people or on other things that would distract us. I pray that our eyes would be on Jesus Christ. The one who made purification for our sins and who sat down at the right hand of God the Father, who accomplished our salvation once and for all. And for that, we're so grateful. I pray if there are any commitments or decisions that need to be made as we close out our time together today that people would respond in obedience and faith and we'll be careful to give you the credit for any good that comes from it and we ask it all in Jesus name amen